Christiana, you may want to move to the other side of the room. <laughs> William, I'll let you kind of turn that up and down or whatever to adjust it a little. So, oh, dear friends, thank you for showing up tonight and being my companions for this. I want to share with you um, what I've practiced the last two months on uh, this sutra. We're, we're doing a different sutra each month, and so the first night of the month is a talk about that sutra, introducing it. So the sutra that I picked couple months ago was the Sutra on the Four Establishments of Mindfulness. And um, I have renamed that the Art of Observation. Uh, it's actually um, one of the foundations. It's, the, it's, a fundam it's fundamental to practicing mindfulness. And um, you know, 2,600 years ago, this was... Uh, spoken or talked about by the Buddha and uh, has gone 2,600 years, generation to generation to generation to us. It's a foundation of mindful observation. So um, I am using and referring to the book. I, I worked with this this last couple months, Transformation and Healing by Thich Nhat Hanh, and I recommend it. It's just awesome. So uh, I will read... The, uh, I'm just going to read an excerpt from the first page that outlines the four establishments of mindfulness. And next week during the sutra service, if you'll all come back, you get to read all eight pages of this sutra. <laughs> I think that's why we haven't read it in sutra services, because it's so long. Um, the Buddha said, bhikkhus, there is a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the right path, and realize nirvana. 
This way is the four establishments of mindfulness. What are the four establishments? Number one, bhikkhus, a practitioner remains established in the observation of the body in the body, diligent with clear understanding, mindful having abandoned every craving and every distaste for this life. Number two, she remains established in the observation of the feelings, in the feelings, diligent with clear understanding, mindful having abandoned every craving and every distaste for this life. Number three, he remains established in the observation of the mind in the mind, diligent with clear understanding, mindful having abandoned every craving and every distaste for this life. And number four, she remains established in the observation of the objects of mind, in the objects of mind, diligent with clear understanding, mindful having abandoned every craving and every distaste for this life. And the sutra goes on to describe all different kinds of things to observe mindfully. So about 30 years ago, when I first started meditating, I had a hard time with um, watching my breathing. Um, I would real easily get distracted or get sleepy. It's just like, this is not the most exciting thing in the world to stare at a wall and watch breathing. So I tried going eyes, you know, to see what I was seeing, ears, nose, tongue, and skin. And I had no idea at the time I was practicing the sutra. I didn't even know what a sutra was. <laughs> and so I feel like I've come full circle now. And I read this and I go, oh, that's what I was doing all those years ago. Um, but I have learned quite a bit from doing this, that there is an art to observation. It's not as easy as it sounds. So I'm going to go through each of the four establishments and talk a little bit about what I got in my journey of the last couple of months exploring this. And if you did it for two months, you would probably have a different talk than I have, But because um, each person finds their own experience as they go through this. So the first one is an observation of the body in the body. And I thought, in the body, what does that mean? Observation of the body, I get that. But observation of the body in the body. What is that about? I always thought that observation during meditation was to detach yourself and observe your breathing, observe things, you know, that you're not, I mean, you're observing and you're not caught up in. But I wasn't really getting the full, rich experience of this, I realize. Um, I, Thich Nhat Hanh writes in this book, Transformation and Healings, it is not enough to stand outside and observe an object. An object might be a thought or uh, anything. The sutra reminds us to be aware of the body in the body. And so he goes on to talk about breathing. He, start, he always starts with breathing, so I guess we're back to breathing. And it's not enough to just observe the breath. In fact, he says, don't pick one place like the tip of your nose or your abdomen, which, which I was taught to do. Um, experience the full breath, breathing in and follow your breath, breathing out. He says, become the breath. 
and um, th like participate in it, Ex observe and participate at the same time. To observe is to be one with the object of observation, he says. So this is what he refers to as you hear the phrase deep looking and um, mindfulness of the body in the body is the way the Buddha says it. Thich Nhat Hanh calls it deep looking or looking deeply. It means observing and participating in that experience. Uh, what it's tricky is to get that balance of observing and participating. And I, you know, I'll explain more about that. And not getting swept away. Because usually when I'm participating, I'm not observing or I'm observing and not participating, but to get the two of them together is, is the art. So he says, when looking deeply, the boundary between yourself as an observer and the object being observed dissolves and understanding can arise. When the body and mind are separating, or separated, uh, like if the mind is dispersed and running off, or if the body is tense, understanding cannot arise. So it's to bring them together to become one. So for me, as I said, breathing is not that easy. Breathing is not a spectator sport. But trying it this way where I could actually become the breath and I practiced with not getting lost in it, not floating off somewhere else in my thoughts, trying to stay with my breath, I found that uh, it was actually pretty interesting. So then I went on to my body, and that was what we did tonight, was I practiced the sense organs of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind as a sense organ. Um, and he says, uh, I practice without any goal. I just practice by um, going to the eyes and just being with my eyes, and I'm being with my ears, and I'm being with my nose, and just see what come up. No goal. Um, it says in the sutra, having abandoned every craving and distaste for this life. Well, what, what does that mean? It simply means um, uh, observing with, without judgment, just not pushing away or, or grasping it toward you. Just uh, no, uh, don't crave and no distaste, non-judgmental. So when I was practicing this uh, over time, uh, I found that I could observe and enter or become what I was observing. I was active and alert in my sitting. Uh, I, maybe that's what they call diligence, because they're always referring to diligence. Maybe Rowan can correct me on that. But I did not feel like a victim to my mind running off. I felt like I was proactive or was uh, actually being more present and it was easier to do. So Rowan said at one time, decide when you go to sit down what you're going to practice. Um, what are you going to do in that sitting period? Are you going to just focus on breathing the whole time? Are you going to meditate uh, observing sense organs? Are you going to do... Um, Looking at a feeling, are you going to ask a question and sit with that? But pick your what you're going to do, and then follow that through for that sitting period. Um, so, 
I did a big variety of these things over the month. I would sit down and I would say, okay, today I'm going to observe my mind. I'm going to observe, I'm going to ask a question and sit with the question. So I went through using the sutra. I did the objects of mind and so forth all through the month. And there was just so much variety. You could, I think you could spend a year on the sutra. Um, so uh, there's another part of this sutra that says, when the practitioner is walking, he is aware he is walking. In whatever position her body happens to be, she is aware of the position of her body. And so I noticed that having practiced this observation of my body, when I was out walking, I would start saying to myself, I am my legs walking. Or if I was sitting and writing, I am my hand writing. And it would really help me get into observing and becoming what I was, in the present moment, what I was doing or what my hand was doing. Or if I was cutting a vegetable, my hand is cutting. Uh, hopefully not cut, but cutting. <laughs> um, I, I want to read a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh's book that I just really like this quote. When we are present in our body and observing with our mind, our mind and body are one and we are connected with ourselves. When body and mind are one, the wounds in our minds, hearts, and bodies begin to heal. As long as there is separation between body and mind, these wounds cannot heal. During sitting meditation, the three elements, breath, body, and mind, are calmed and gradually they become one. When peace is established in one of these three elements, the other two will soon have peace also. And I noticed tonight, when I was sitting, I was noticing, I'm a little anxious here, my heart was fluttering a little bit, I was in second meditation, and I'm going, I relaxed my body, and my mind seemed to relax. And then my body would tense up again, and I'd try to relax my mind, and my body could relax. So I was kind of playing with this even tonight. So the second um, establishment is mindfulness of feelings in the feelings. And it has a lot to do with awareness of if your feeling experience is positive, negative, or neutral. Um, and then positive, negative, neutral nature of feelings. But that was, I wanted to work with specific, be more specific. Uh, that seemed to be where I needed to go. So I focused on specific feelings. And it was actually harder because for me, feelings, uh, I don't tend to notice them unless they're big. Um, and sometimes I confuse feelings with reactions. So I might get really angry, and I'll see, and I think that the feeling is angry. I am really feeling angry. And I'll think that that is the feeling. But um, what I, if I can calm my body down and then not do anything, just breathe and kind of calm my body down, it's amazing. Another feeling will be, um, I, I notice that the anger is a behavioral expression of another feeling, and the feeling is um, maybe um, sadness or disappointment, hurt, um, anxiety, or nervousness. Um, 
And and so by doing that, I gain understanding rather than a bunch of messy consequences. So I found that pretty handy to be able to do. So Thich Nhat Hanh talks about observing the feeling and become a sponsor to it. I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. I like an AA sponsor who is a non-judgmental companion. Um, they don't tell you what to do. They don't you know, necessarily or boss you around. They are just a companion. I was thinking of like a groom to a um, excited racehorse there to calm and just be with as a companion to the feelings. In fact, that's how he described being the participant in your breathing to uh, become a companion or to whatever you're observing. Be a companion and observe that, whether it's a feeling or something in your mind. So I want to um, describe a uh, situation that came up. And it was at Thanksgiving, where I had to work with the feelings. It was Thanksgiving, and my uh, family had come out for Thanksgiving Day. And I was excited because they haven't been coming out as often since the kids are getting older, 9 and, and, nine and 12 now. And um, so it was great to have them out for the day. We had this idyllic day, just how I had envisioned it. I'd done a lot of work ahead of time, so I had all this free time. And we went climbing a tree up in the woods. And, you know, it was just a sweet meal together, and all was going well. Well, about 7 o'clock, my daughter and I agreed we would play a game with kids. And started out, but then my older grand, my granddaughter started insisting that the, my grandson, two years younger, play precisely by the rules. This is the way it is done. And he's a little more laid back, so he didn't necessarily follow them to a T. Well, she was pretty demanding, and he had a meltdown because he was tired. It was in, in the evening. It had been a long day. So he had a meltdown. Then the parents jump in. Then my granddaughter had a meltdown because the parents had gotten involved, and then she was in trouble because he was, um, you know, crying. And so the next thing you know, my daughter and family were whisking all their belongings together and throwing them in the car and carrying the wailing kids out to the car, and off they go. So here I'd had this idyllic day, and then in the last 15 minutes, bam, you know, this explosion of blah, you know, and it was very unsettling, if you can imagine it. So they walk out the door, and I'm kind of like, what just happened? And I walk into the kitchen, and I see the mounds of dishes <laughs> that are awaiting me, and that was the last straw for me. And Rowan was trying to be very patient and helpful, and well, I had my meltdown. <laughs> so then I'm melting down. And you know, sometimes it's hard to give up a good rant. There's some energy and some, <laughs> it wakes you up and it's juicy. And I was having a good rant. He says, you know, maybe you might want to go in the other room and calm down before I break things. So I went in the other room, I turned out the lights, and I just breathed and tried to calm my body and calm down. And um, it didn't take all that long. I just loved the fact that I could 
see myself. I could become, I could observe, and I could become this companion to myself and, you know, be gentle, not berate myself for losing it, just really just kind of be there with myself until I calmed down. And then I came back into the kitchen and I could observe myself. I could observe disappointment. Um, and it was hard to see what a beautiful, it was only 15 minutes of disappointment. So why blow the whole day over 15 minutes? But that, that disappointment was just kind of floating around there and I could observe it and tiredness. And then I could approach what had to be done and the rest I did the next day. But you have to get the turkey carcass cleaned up and put in it. You know, you can't just leave it on the counter. So um, I really liked being able to disengage and then re-engage. It's disengage, re-engage by observing mindfully and participating as a companion to the feelings and the experience. A uh, whole different thing. So the third one, observation of the mind in the mind. Um, I was practicing this by just observing the thoughts arising, uh, maturing, dissipating. Arise, mature, dissipate. Um, and I noticed the rhythm of that, and there's a rhythm in life of everything. It's impermanent. Everything arises, matures, and dissipates. There's a different rhythm. Some it's like, boom, 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 it's done. Sometimes like a mountain, it's very long. But still, everything arises and dissipates. And so I was watching these things arise in my mind and so forth. And I, as I was watching just my mind and not the thoughts, I noticed the different processes um, from my sense organs. It takes My mind takes in everything from my sense organs, all those, and, and identifies processes it, creates its stories around them, stores them places. It's a very active thing. And it also was, I would notice it was taking in stuff you can't see, touch, hear, taste, or smell. Um, it was taking in senses internally and externally. Uh, I guess I might call that intuition. So it's also responding to, to that. So that was interesting to me to observe all that going on. And um, I got a little confused when he talks about uh, observing the mind in the mind. He's talking about states of mind, like the state of agitation is here or the state of confusion is here. Well, I did that with feelings. Now we're in mind. So, and I, Rowan reassured me that it's really not important. <laughs> If it's a state of mind or if it's a feeling, as long as you're observing it. Um, and so one of the things I observed, I'll tell you about, we went to Kansas and, dro and drove to Kansas. So we stopped at a rest area near the Missouri River, um, um, maybe five hours out of Kansas City. And we, the rest area, the um, museum there was closed, so we found a trail, and we walked in the woods. It was autumn. It was October, and it was just beautiful. And the trees were all yellow and all, and we found a bench, and we sat on the bench. And we're sitting there looking at the colors and the textures and everything. But this rest area was located right off the interstate. So you couldn't see it, 
when we're sitting there seeing this beautiful scene, but we're hearing the sounds of the highway, the interstate. So it was like we were standing on the shoulder, it was so loud. And there was the incongruity of what I was seeing and what I was hearing in my mind. I was amused watching my mind try to cope with this just isn't right, something's wrong here. So it was kind of fun to sit on the bench and observe that. Um, another story uh, about observing the mind. Okay, it was nighttime. It was, it was like 2 in the morning. I wake up, can't go back to sleep. And it's right around Halloween. I had told my granddaughter I would make her her Halloween costume. So I had this bunch of gold fabric, and I was supposed to make a ruffled train, and no pattern, nothing. I was just supposed to take this piece of cloth and turn it into something. And and so I wake up at 2 in the morning, and my mind took off. It picked up that fabric, and it, it designed a plan after plan after plan as to where I would cut and how I would cut. And I'm just sitting there going, I want to sleep. And I would cut it this way, and then I, okay, I could assemble it that way. It was just going through plan after plan, and I was basically helpless to, to stop it. I just I was just determined to figure out how to make this costume. I thought, I could do this tomorrow. Um, so all I could do, basically, I mean, sometimes I've had, maybe you've had perseverating mind where it just grabs on and just goes and rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls and you can't let go. So um, the um, outcome of that was I finally just had to just lay there and smile and I could observe it and I could be a companion to it. In this case, I couldn't stop it. Um, I... Finally, Rowan woke up and I said, would you scratch my back? And he scratched my back. And just that physical distraction was enough to break that. And I was able to um, break the chain of thought. And, um, but it was amazing the power of the mind for that unrelenting um, process it can get into. And I had to admire the way that it was determined and persistent in solving this problem. I didn't want it to do it right now, but it was determined to do it like my life depended on it. And I thought about it, you know, maybe it's practice for when my life does depend on it. <laughs> so that's not such a bad thing. Um, anyway, um, but it was, I did feel a little bit like a victim uh, in that case. <laughs> but I could see I, that I, I could at least watch it. Um, I also want to mention that joyful feelings, it's really important to observe joyful feelings too. Because you need the energy that that generates in order to deal with the, the harder ones. I won't go into any stories on those because I need to move on. Um, but joyful feelings are really a good idea to really uh, observe and participate and really become them. 
So the fourth one was mindfulness or observation of the objects of the mind in the objects of the mind. So first I had to ask, what the heck is an object of the mind? Because, you know, this Buddhist language stuff. And um, the objects of the mind can also be called dharmas with a small d. And so dharmas is the Buddhist word for anything. It can be a thought, a couch, a carpet, a bird, a mountain, an ocean, um, a feeling, uh, an intuition. It can be anything. So object of mind is anything in your mind. So um, anything that comes into the mind from within or without. And the phrase I like is dharmas, which means any, you know, things that you're observing, are objects of the mind as sounds are objects of the ears. So what could I learn from this? Well, as I was observing my mind and the objects of my mind, I noticed that I was stacking things. So I would sit and I would stack. i got to do this, and then I need to do that, and then I need to do that, and I had that stack. I'd get tense. Okay, relax, release it. And then I would start stacking. Okay, I'm gonna, how, this is how I'm going to do this project. And when I was working, I remember that I used to stack my... My lesson plans, you know, I just call it stacking because you get this thought and then this thought on top of that and that thought on top of that. And then pretty soon you got a big stack of this thoughts. And I found that I could actually observe and be a companion to these and then release them. Um, and the other thing I thought about was if I were a nurse, I would be stacking patients and um, hospital schedules and those kinds of things. If I were a parent, I would be stacking activities and you know, a whole different set of stacks than what I had. And so what I realized from this, it just kind of put, just made me realize every person has a different set of things that they go, that are objects of their minds. And it just kind of put mine into perspective. It's, it's just basically, we're, we all do this, and it's human condition. So I found that kind of useful. And so object of mind, if you shorten it, it's O-M. Um. <laughs> and that reminded me of Rowan's favorite song, Baptist to Buddhist, which sings at the end, Om, Om, Sweet Om. If you remember that song, Om, Om, Sweet Om. And so Om, in that case, stands for home. So when I release an object of mine, that's home. Om, you know, I just can say Om to myself when I want to release something. So it was just kind of a funny little silly thing that came up for me. So one last thing that I want to mention is that when I was meditating on my senses, I was working on objects of mind, and, um, or no, I was working on um, the uh, sense organs, and I was working with, I was sitting with my eyes, and I noticed that my eyes, I was just really getting into my eyes, and was aware that my eyes were made up of water, and um, 
chemicals and cell membranes and cells and all these things, none of which could be called an eye. There was not one thing that made up my eyes that was an eye. So it took all of these different elements to make up what we call an eye. And so um, my eyes did not, I say I am my eyes, but my eyes don't exist separately. And um, which is kind of like the whole idea of interbeing. So I started exploring this and I thought of the periodic table which has 98 naturally occurring elements. Everything is made up of a different combination of these elements, all 98 elements. Um, combination of that or conditions. And that made me think of the alphabet. We have 26 letters. Too bad Sandra's not here. She's our wordsmith. 26 letters in the alphabet, and every word and the English language comes from different combinations of those 26 letters. And so our language is just different combinations and different meanings of those main elements. And our bodies are made up of the same elements that everything else in existence is made up. So we are not different from anything else. We are part of everything. And so Thich Nhat Hanh calls this interbeing. And in the Buddha's day, it was called dependent co-arising. How do you like that for a term? <laughs> so in closing, um, it appeared, I mean, you, just starting with the simple four elements of observation and just one of them, the eyes, I was able in the course of a couple of months to even go all the way to the point of, of realizing some of the uh, interbeing and stuff. It's just amazing. So it seems like this sutra is a simple description of the art of observation or mindfulness, um, but it is amazingly transformative. So actually the universe is in this discourse.